0: Crimes and Cocktails, a podcast where we explore true crime while drinking a customized cocktail created by us, your bartenders.
1: Hey, I'm Tabitha. I'm Katie. Just a quick heads up. This show contains sensitive and graphic material that might not be for everyone. If you don't enjoy in-depth true crime, humor about true crime, and drinking, please don't continue. We want to be respectful of the victims in these crimes, but as for the criminal, We just don't give a shit tonight is part one of three exploring the golden state killer not all of our shows will be in three parts but we decided to start off this podcast with a bang we'll see uh, if we're too ambitious or not
0: (laughs) it might be a little bit too much for us to be honest (laughs) Um, i have to admit i've actually barely heard about the golden state killer probably a year ago um, I think I was like, f- you know, thumbing through like Netflix documentaries or something and somehow I stumbled on the ID. um, was it, on the Hulu, it was a documentary yeah. about like we haven't found him yet and stuff and I, I immediately texted you and was like, uh-huh. I have never heard of this guy, how
1: the heck have I not heard of him? This is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel like he hasn't been uh, talked about too much until recently, um, I think it was just one of those cold cases that kind of fell to the side. Um, but, you know, now, 2018, I mean, in 2018, <laughs> in, in 2018. You know,
0: I miss 2018, 2018. let's be honest. 2020, yeah. it's been a little bit of a shit show.
1: But. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but we could have used that win on the arrest, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, who knows? But anyway, before we get into the Golden State uh, Killer, we're going to... Um, Tell you how to make this podcast cocktail yeah recipe. so
0: why are we called crimes and cocktails because we make a cocktail it may seem a little bit weird but we're going to pair it with these crimes and katie came
1: up with what do we call it the Golden State Chiller, <laughs> which uh, is delicious. We're both drinking it right now. Uh, to be honest, we've already had one. Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> but, you know, um, we're going to be drinking it through. So I think you should drink it through, too. Um, it might have spilled a
0: little on the mic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's going to get sloppy in here. All right. So um, our recipe can be found on our Instagram, which is Crimes and Cocktails. You should follow us on there for all of our up to date. Um, For all four of you listeners that are already following us, you rock. We love you all. We'll probably know all your names by next week. (laughs) Anyway, so um, again, tonight we have the Golden State Chiller. This is a bourbon-based drink, and it's incredibly delicious, and it's super easy to make at home. So to start off, put two ounces of your favorite bourbon in a cocktail shaker, three-quarter ounces of fresh lemon juice, three-quarter ounces of honey, and one small scoop of ice. Shake it. And then in an old-fashioned glass, meddle some blackberries, mint leaves, and add a large ice cube. (laughs) Thank you for the sound effects. (laughs) Strain uh, strain the shaker and pour it into a glass and sit back and enjoy. This is episode one of Crimes and Cocktails. I'd have to say that it's pretty minty. I've inhaled about three mint
0: leaves, but... It's really good. It's pretty really refreshing. You can straighten it out if you want. No, <laughs> Next you know, it's good. I, I like it. It gives some texture. Yeah. It could be like a meal on the side or something, like a nice little salad.
1: Yeah, don't let anybody make you feel bad about drinking. No, this uh, is actually, uh,
0: <laughs> I think this might actually be my third drink already. We had to experiment a little bit, you know. Yeah. If you have a suggestion for how to make this better, definitely DM us. I think it's great, though what yeah. are we
1: using we're using woodford reserve, woodford reserve today um so woodford reserve if you're listening we would love a sponsorship we'll <laughs> use your uh, bourbon in every drink we make you know what i just take even a free bottle of alcohol <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i don't need that for us for one night <laughs> okay I, I
0: actually doubt anyone is going to be listening from there and <laughs> anyways shall we get into
1: it yeah let's get going all right all right so joseph james d'angelo um burglar serial rapist and serial killer Uh, He committed at least 120 burglaries, 50 rapes, and 13 murders. Uh, He was also known under several previous aliases all throughout California. The Visalia Ransacker, East Area Rapist, or EAR, EAR, the original Night Stalker. Which is
0: prior to Richard Ramirez, if you guys know, he's known as the Night Stalker, but after we found out about this guy, they're like, nah, this guy was the original. He's the OG Night Stalker.
1: (laughs) And then the Diamond Knot Killer. Yeah. So as the Visalia Ransacker from 1973 to 1975, what started as a small, almost seemingly innocent break-in soon progressed to an aggressive ransacking and destruction in people's homes. The first recorded burglary... By the way, neither of us could say burglary, so sorry about that. <laughs> That's why I make Katie say it. <laughs> yeah. It's going to get worse as I keep drinking. Um, anyway, the original was on a Tuesday, March 19th, 1974, when $50 in coins was stolen from a piggy bank. Sometimes he would ransack multiple homes in one day, such as on Saturday, November 30th, 1974, when he broke into 12 different homes. 12 homes. <laughs> to this guy. 12 homes. <laughs> this guy. Jeez. Uh, D'Angelo would rummage through women's women's Sorry, there's probably only like
0: what 20 homes in Visalia anyways I I mean, and for those of you Who are not familiar with California It's a great state, we're both from it Um, Visalia is like It's in the middle of nowhere It's not really Southern California It's not Northern California it's
1: like in the southern east middle you know yeah and literally nobody lives there no one lives there There's so to cows. find 12 different homes where people weren't home at the same time like
0: yeah which we'll what? we'll tell you later i mean the guy got into probably actually almost every freaking house in visalia but yeah,
1: yeah it's pretty crazy more on that <laughs> um, so he would rummage through women's underwear, move around pictures, and take small little items such as pictures, ID, an earring. He usually only took one, which was strange. And then, of course, the women's underwear.
0: Which I don't understand men's obsession with panties. I, I was watching some movie the other day. Um, I don't remember what it was, but it was like some 90s like teen movie. And the teenagers like go into teenage boys. They're like, trying to get something from their sister's room. And his friends are like, ooh, panties. Knees, and they're like smelling yeah. it, and I'm like, what the hell? I'm so glad that my brothers never did that weird little shit with their friends. Because I, I call you out right
1: here once it? sleepover? <laughs> you know what? I'd rather not, not discuss <laughs> it.
0: Um, actually, I think it was white chicks. No, okay. I think it, no, no, no. Well, that does happen to white that chicks.
1: That See, it happens a it's lot. It's happened a lot, and it I don't understand
0: it. If you're that obsessed with women's panties, and I'm going to say, say panties secret. because I have about three friends who hate the word panties. So I'm going to use <laughs> panties several times but exactly why not just go buy it for yourself i don't know I, I don't I don't understand it and I don't know why you'd wanna smell them and and truthfully you're just smelling the laundry detergent anyways because if any girl is putting like her used underwear back into her drawer, I mean that's just disgusting. However wanna know that girl. <laughs> I did find out recently and for those of you on unemployment, um, it sucks right now, but you can sell women's underwear for like five hundred dollars on the internet. I'm not doing it.
1: It's called being an accountant and an entrepreneur. <laughs> I'm
0: not doing it. But you know, I, I'm not saying it's the worst they did either. If someone's gonna pay me $500 for dirty old underwear, nah, you know, I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> sidetracked.
1: That's, that's between <laughs> right.
0: A few examples of his ransacking, which is also <laughs> a fun word to say. Yeah, ransacker. Like, I don't think anyone ever says that anymore, but ransacking. If you don't know what ransacking is, uh, what are you, generation whatever now? Uh, ransacking is like rummaging through things, destroying things. I mean, this guy, he wasn't taking a baseball bat to people's homes, but he was pulling every piece of clothing out and throwing it on the bed and moving picture frames around and going through their fridges and pulling plates out and, you know, couch pillows everywhere. It was super weird. Um, Sometimes he stole things, like she said. Like, sometimes it'd just be one earring. Not both earrings. Just one earring. I don't know why. Uh, On his ninth attack was on, let's see, so there's, he did a lot of attacks, right? We're going to call them attacks. Uh, a few examples of it. Attack number nine happened on May 17th, 1974 at West Dartmouth Avenue. He stole money, a little bit of money. It was probably like five bucks, to be honest, a piggy bank. Uh, blue chip stamps, which I don't actually know what that is. Do you know what blue chip stamps are? Uh,
1: at certain grocery stores, they during this time, they would give you um, stamps, kind of like um, a rewards program, oh. and then you would bring the stamps uh, back, and you would get, you know, like a free can of biscuits, whatever. Oh, okay,
0: because I noticed oh. blue chip stamps was actually in a lot of the Berkeley things. Uh, police reports. Yeah, he really wanted stands. 50
1: cents off orange juice.
0: <laughs> yeah, and he'd ransacked bedrooms, he littered uh, clothing throughout the room. Uh, the next attack happened literally the next day on West Cambridge Avenue and he ransacked all the rooms, but he didn't steal anything. He just had a party in there and threw everything and around.
1: That, I'm like, I mean, I'm not okay with ransacking and stealing from people, but if you're gonna go through the trouble of maybe getting caught, you should take something with you, you know? Like, I would. Yeah, I don't know. I also wouldn't just be in somebody's house, but...
0: The same day, he went and ransacked another house, uh, West Feemster Avenue, and it doesn't really say exactly what he took, but I think he collectively got about $52, and then attack number 19, so he obviously did a couple attacks in between, this happened... About a week later, on May 26, 1974, again, he went back to West Cambridge. He took money, he ransacked all the bedrooms, he opened a Playboy magazine on the bed. Ooh, lucky! Pried open various doors and windows, and there was evidence that he even put lotion on his hands, because I guess they found, like, fingerprints on the windows, but it had, like, a lotion on it. Kind of weird. And little fun fact, apparently in another uh, break-in, he accidentally or maybe deliberately left behind a bottle of lotion and the family said it wasn't theirs. It happened to be Juergens. Kind of weird. Guess he liked to lather up his hands. Attack number 47. So he's done, you know, already... 20 more break-ins happened on a couple it was a six months later november 30th 1974 on west paradise and this is great he stole 30 cents which by <laughs> the way who the hell realizes that they have 30 cents missing now granted this is in the 70s but i still don't think 30 cents was something that i would notice missing i at would all not noticed that so weird he took two rings he took an earring one earring and he ransacked the room and, yeah, littered all over the place. I kind of feel like, at this point, the fact that he took, like, 30 cents or just one earring, it's more about, like, the, the thrill of the theft rather than the conquest. like Definitely. I, You know, and one thing that I will say as we get more into him and his the crimes he committed, it's pretty evident that he is a process uh, serial you know, whatever, thief, burglar, mm-hmm. rapist, and eventually killer, rather over the product. So there's a lot of times later on where it's more about what he's doing as he's doing it while he's doing it rather than the outcome of it.
1: Definitely. Even though the ransacking of the home seemed disorganized, the Visalia Ransacker, AKA Joseph D'Angelo, had a consistent MO. It was very obvious that each home was picked out prior. A few of his calling cards, or MOs, include homes were close to parks, schools, or open fields for easier escape. He would place warning items, such as dishes or bottles, against doors and on door handles. He would wear gloves and be careful to not leave any evidence, such as fingerprints, behind. Which is actually
0: kind of something that not your average Joe would know in this time frame. So, one of the theories was when they were trying to, you know, figure out who he was, was that maybe he's a police officer because he'd have the knowledge to be careful to not leave a fingerprint behind. Yeah.
1: Um, So, remember, this is in the 1970s. Yeah. So, in a span of 18 months, D'Angelo burglarized burglarized 91 homes, stealing random items, or sometimes not stealing anything at all. Eventually, he grew tired of the break-ins and attempted to kidnap. On Wednesday night, September 11th, 1975, the Visalia Ransacker broke into the Snelling residence at 532 Whitney Lane and threatened 16-year-old Beth Snelling in an attempt to kidnap her. He told her he would stab or shoot her if she didn't go with him. Her father, Claude Snelling, age 45, woke up to hearing strange noises in the house around 2 a.m. He shouted and ran out through the back door, which was left open from the Ransacker, and confronted him. The Ski Mask Ransacker shot Claude twice and fled on foot, leaving behind a stolen bicycle. Which, by the way, uh, was he going to steal a 16-year-old, I mean, not steal, but kidnap a 16-year-old
0: girl on a bicycle?
1: Hey, <laughs> like, little girl, you can ride on the handlebars. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? I don't really yeah, understand this a that. big 16-year-old-shaped basket just <laughs> driving I, Okay, I don't know. I don't know. He uh, obviously didn't think this one through. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the gun used, which was a stolen 38 moroku revolver we apologize to gun people who know what the hell that is i don't know anything yes it was stolen um from another ransacking the month before was found discarded in a ditch on september 19th 1975 the visalia police department put pretty much all their resources into finding this ransacker and again i'd like to point out how small visalia was so even putting in all their ransack uh, all their resources in um it probably wasn't wasn't that much (laughs) Um, they even used to, um, they even used hypnosis on sixteen year old Beth Snelling to try and capture any details of him. They uh, also had a four thousand reward up to anyone up to anyone with information on him. Yeah. So
0: to put that in perspective, in the year nineteen seventy, the population of Azalea was
1: around twenty seven thousand, which is basically no one. Um, So the $4,000 reward for information on him is equivalent to $19,264 in today's money. Police officers were having weekend stakeouts in the neighborhoods of previous attacks. Now on December 10th, 1975, around 8.30 p.m. on West uh, Kauai, Detective William McGowan witnessed a suspicious male walking in the neighborhood. He confronted the man and the stranger pulled out a firearm and shot at him. The bullet pierced McGowan's flashlight, knocking him to the ground. Several officers engaged in a major manhunt after him, but he managed to get away and disappeared from Visalia altogether after the shooting. Officer McGowan later described the suspect's voice as juvenile and that he begged McGowan not to hurt him. Yeah, so pretty
0: much after that happened, I guess he disappeared. Like, that was kind of the last thing. That was the last break-in they really heard from him. Um, I mean, they had been staking out, by the way, like a lot of homes that he had already attacked. Mm-hmm. Like I said, they were putting probably all five officers they have, I don't know, out there to try and find him. And after this close encounter, he decided it was time to move on. And... Well, no, I guess we'll talk about. I was going to say something, but I guess we'll wait till we'll wait until we talk about
1: his actual life. We'll wait and talk about we'll that. We'll find out later. Yeah, yeah. All right. So next we're going to move on to the East Area Rapist. The East Area Rapist attacks are documented from 1976 to 1979 and aren't really secluded to the east part of Sacramento. They started there but stretched out to as far as San Ramon, San Jose, Fremont, Stockton, Davis, etc.
0: Yeah, so Sacramento is California's state capital. It's in Northern California, um, but it has kind of a small-town vibe to it. Now, Katie, you live in Sacramento right now, and I'd say it still kind of has that vibe sometimes.
1: I mean, there are obviously city... When or, you go out of the city and you're more on the outskirts, it's still like a little farm town. Right, right. Um, and so in the 1970s, there weren't any shopping, like big shopping centers, shopping malls. It was very much small town vibe, even though yeah. it was the capital. This
0: isn't like L.A. or Chicago or some big, you know, city type of area. Like neighbors, new neighbors. I mean, you got to think we're coming out of the 50s right now and you knew your neighbors. You left your front door open. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, houses were all it's, it's total suburban area, like all the the houses are one story. That was a big thing. Like in the seventies, they all have spacious yards, trees. And the one common thing that we see about a lot of the places that he would break into is they had, they were close to a good exit route. And by that, I mean, they had some kind of um you know like a trail behind the Mm -hmm. house or something like that there's there's a couple rivers that run through sacramento and sometimes these houses were skirted next to the river so he could easily hop the fence and escape into a little foresty area it was Kind of weird. One victim, I was watching this documentary, and it said that 1976, which is the year that the EAR, you know, started committing these crimes, they said it was the end of Sacramento's innocence. Because, and like I said, in this time frame, I mean, you could, uh, your parents were just like, hey, just be home by dark. You didn't have a cell phone. You, you know, you weren't telling your parents where you're going all the time. You're just out playing on your bike with your friends. All hours And at sunset, you come home and you eat dinner and, you know, you do your homework
1: and whatever. You go to bed. So it's just much different, much different thing. Definitely. So the first recorded rape happened at 4 a.m. on Friday, June 18th, 1976.
0: Yeah. So the first, uh, I have a little insert here. And I got this insert from a website called the Quester Files. Um, and he kind of, like, summed up some of the stories and, and made him sound a little bit more, um, I don't know, storyish. I guess, is the right word I'm looking for. But um, I'm going to say this, read this narrative that he has about the first rape that was committed by the EAR. It was about 4 a.m., June 18th, 1976. The victim, who was 23 years old, by the way, was awakened from sound sleep by a methodical tapping. She noticed the silhouette of a man standing in the doorway to her bedroom. He was tapping with something against her door frame. Before she could clear her eyes, the light switched on. There stood a man tapping a large knife against the door frame. He was wearing a mask and gloves, a dark t-shirt, but was naked from the waist down, and he was aroused. He continued to tap while she, horrified, watched. The mask was dirty gray with holes only for his eyes The eyes stood out by contrast as they prowled her. She drew the sheets over her face. He darted toward her, jumped on her, straddled her, ripped the sheets off her face, then placed the tip of the knife at her temple and drew a little bit of blood. Now he spoke through clenched teeth in a sort of angry whisper. If you make a move or a sound, I'll stick this knife in you. I want to fuck you. He got off of her and stood by the bed, He commandingly pointed the knife at her nightgown and growled, take it off. He paced the room while she undressed. Once done, he stood over her. It was her period and he noticed a sanitary napkin in place. Take it out, he commanded. When this was done, he said, roll over. He must have placed the knife down or inserted it in the sheath for she felt both of his gloved hands around her arms behind her back and crossed them over. He then tied her wrist tightly with a pre-cut rope. He then rummaged about the room and came back and tied her wrist again with one of her own cloth belts. He commanded, roll over. Then he raped her. She opened her eyes only when he was finished. She saw him wipe off his penis with the bedsheet, drop it to the floor. Then standing there, he demanded, do you have money? She tried to answer, but he snarled through his clenched teeth, shut up. It was a sort of whisperly snarl. He searched about the room, found her hair dryer, and returned. He stared at her for a moment. Despite wanting to close her eyes, she couldn't. To her, it seemed as if he was intentionally trying to instill fear. He tied her ankles with the cord. Then he tied her bra around her ankles. Once again, he wandered around the room until he found what he wanted, her slip. He approached her again, staring at her. While he twisted the slip around in his hands, he breathed heavily through his clenched teeth, causing the tight hood around his mouth to blow out and suck in. Then he tied it around her as a gag. She continued to hear him wander and rummage through her bedroom. He returned and pointed tight, the tip of the knife near her right eye. Don't make a move while I'm here or I'll kill you. He left the bedroom and soon started rummaging through drawers in the kitchen. She heard him talking in a low whisper. She thought two people were actually whispering back and forth. This seemed confirmed when he spoke in a louder whisper saying, I told you to shut up. After this, it was quiet. There were no sounds for quite some time. Finally, she struggled and loosened the bindings and the drier cord around her ankles and the bra strap so that she could get up and hobble down the hallway. She discovered the back door was open She slammed it with her feet, but the deadbolt was strangely engaged and this prevented the door from closing. She went for the phone on the kitchen wall and knocked it off the receiver from the cradle, but she couldn't reach the dial. So she rushed down the hall to her father's bedroom, knocking the receiver off the cradle and dialed with numb fingers and then from the floor spoken to the receiver. By the way, the phone around this time, and the I read in some other article that the phone that she had was one of those ones where you have to put your finger in and pull the, the rotary. Dry, uh, rotary phone yeah so it's not like a cell phone, and I don't know was nine one one was around, I think in the seventies, right? I yeah, think so so it wasn't like a real phone number she had to do,
1: but oh, that's quite a creepy uh, first attack there. Yes and he attacked again the following month. Uh, Attack number two took place on July 17th, 1976. It was a Saturday at 2 a.m. on Del Deo in Carmichael, California. Attack number three came the next month, um, August 29th, 1976 on Sunday at 3.20 a.m. Brancho Cordova, California. Attack number four happened in September on the 4th of 1976, Saturday, 11.30 p.m. Citrus Heights, California.
0: And then attack number five, um, this one's kind of interesting because, and I'll explain in a moment, but um, most of these attacks happened, as you noticed, there was 11.30 p.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m. His fifth attack now happens at 6.30 in the morning. At 6.30 on Tuesday morning, October 5th, 1976, Bill Carson, who's an Air Force captain, leaves for work his three-year-old son Paul climbs into the bed with his mother Jane Carson. and then at 6:45 a.m, only 15 minutes after Bill Carson leaves for work, uh, Jane hears the back door open and she assumes her husband, you know maybe he forgot something and she sees a flash of light in the hallway. so I'm kind of assuming it's probably you know it's a little dark outside, so this is October. She sees a flash of light in the hallway and then she hears full-on running and she's trying to see, you know, what what the heck? And she's immediately met with a knife to her chest and a flashlight beaming in her face and a masked man tells her through clenched teeth again, shut up or I will kill you, I just want your money. So then on her bed, he begins to tie up and gag both Jane and her three-year-old son, Paul, And then he picks up Paul and he moves her to the other, and moves him to the other room. And he comes back into Jane's room. And he unties her legs, positioned himself on top of her. And she tried to speak. She's she's trying to feel around for her son, like, where is my son? And she has this panicked feeling. And he says, shut up or I'll kill you. And then he raped her. After raping her, he tied her ankles back up. He brings her son back into the room and lays him down on the bed. And then he goes in the kitchen and Jane is hearing him rummage through the refrigerator clanging pots and pans and I, I read actually, she wrote a book later and I read, she said, I sat there thinking how sick he's going to eat something after he did this, how, how could he eat something? After what seemed like hours, she eventually heard nothing and she woke up her son who had fallen asleep next to her and they try to hobble and they hobble outside and yell for help and a neighbor helps them and they call the police and this is this is interesting so this is his fifth attack here and um, he's he obviously is starting to build a a routine I I guess Mm -hmm. you know he's got his MO's now he's coming in and he's tying them up that's the first thing he's doing right he's flashing them with the with the flashlight he's blinding them and he's talking through the clenched teeth and he's he's tying them up so they don't do anything and i feel like the blinding i mean you know when someone blinds your eyes you, you don't know how to defend yourself the first thing you do is flinch your eyes or it's surprising. Of he uses yeah. That moment. Yeah, yeah he uses that to his engagement well here's another interesting thing Jane said that she had been receiving phone calls before her attack and the phone would ring. She'd pick up and she'd hear nothing. And sometimes the phone would just hang up or she'd just have silence. And this went on for weeks. Well, the day before, on October 4th, she received another phone call. And by this time, she's, she's just completely fed up with the silence and the hang of phone calls. And she begins shouting at the person on their phone, like, who is this? Stop calling like this. The police know about it and they know who you are. And the voice says, I'm going to kill your husband. So she hangs up the phone. She tries to call her husband, was, wasn't able to get a hold of him. She calls the police and the police are kind of like, I think it's a prank. You're fine. Well, the next day, she's attacked.
1: Yeah, so he would make these hang-up or um, sometimes lewd calls that preceded burglaries, prowling, and sexual assaults to gain intelligence on the residents who are home or vulnerable to attacks um, to attacks and burglaries. He would get down your routine. Um, obviously, he knew in that um, case when her husband was leaving for work. Right. So he came in then. I mean, he um, came in 15
0: minutes after. Yeah. Like, I'm just thinking here, like, what if my husband... Uh, you know, for did forget something and turned around and walked in on that. Which, by the way, I forgot to mention, when she hobbled out, she tried to go through the front door, but he had put a chair propped up against the door handle so that someone couldn't come into the front door at first. Yeah. So it was probably another one of those alarms like mm-hmm. he did with the burglary. So she had to go out the back door, actually. He was planning
1: for it in advance. Yeah. Oh, it's another reason not to answer your phone ever. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> could be a serial killer. It could be,
0: AT and T wanting their bill. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, uh, nineteenth. So, so the phone calling is one of these things that we see a lot. Actually, um, I'm going to jump ahead here just a little bit. In uh, March 18th, 1977, it was actually uh, victim number 15. Answered the phone. This is before obviously they were a victim, but they answered the phone and they spoke with a man who identified himself as a roofer. He asked to speak with her father, and she said, My parents are out of town for the weekend. Well, sure enough, he attacked her that night. And then she asked her dad, You know, later on, were you expecting a phone call from a roofer? And her dad said, He wasn't. So he was obviously. Trying to learn the routine through either mm-hmm. stalking them and phone calling them. And he's like, oh, prepared Here's to Perfect. Here's my yeah. chance. Um, and then on top of that, he was also calling the, the police. Like, he was getting cockier. The next, or the same day, I think either before or after the rape, he calls the sheriff and he said, I'm the east side rapist. And then he laughed and hung up. And then he did it 15 minutes later, again, the same day. And that was kind of a common occurrence. And one of the things is a lot of the victims actually said that even after they were raped, they would receive these phone calls. And I actually have a clip here of it's one of the most famous phone calls, I think, from this case. Um, This happened a few years later, 1978, but he is calling, I can't remember exactly which victim it is, but this phone call was made on January 2nd, 1978, and he is uh, calling someone he's already raped and just kind of harassing them, so I'm going to go ahead and play that for you.
1: What what the hell, right? I hate that clip. Um, he's calling somebody who we already obviously traumatized. And then they get that phone call. That creepy, heavy breathing and now threatening, you know, her life. It's just he, he, disgusting. He has kind of like a high voice. Too. I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, I was right.
0: expecting it to be a much deeper, I will kill you, but it was kind of this weird. I mean, it didn't even sound human, to be honest. And this yeah. is the 70s. It doesn't have, like, some
1: app to change his voice. Yeah, it goes back to what the officer McGowan said in Vice yeah. Zalia, Uh that the voice was not deep, it was almost. Um, F- Feminine is what he called yeah. it. So, yeah. you could definitely see it there.
0: Um, or here. I was actually watching this one documentary, and it's, you know, kind of like sleuths that are just, you know, podcasters or something like that, that were doing their own digging. And they totally tried, I don't know if you could hear, but in the background of that, you hear talking, and so the police were like, maybe there's his family talking in the background, or something like that, and I can't remember what it was, but upon a lot of investigation, they found out it was actually just background noise from a movie that was airing that night on a tv channel i can't
1: remember what it was but casually walking a movie and up <laughs> just the phone. Calling people that's a good idea ugh, so, ugh. so um after the eighth attack the press was finally allowed to report on the rape so they were made public um before then the, you know, the general public didn't know about what was going on.
0: Yeah, you only knew if, and I mean, again, these are small suburban neighborhoods, so this wasn't something that all of Sacramento knew about. It was more like, did you hear what happened to John and Jane, you know, down over there? It was more word of mouth. And I think actually right before the press got it there was a community meeting like a town meeting Mm -hmm. that happened at a school where people were saying hey this is happening in our neighborhood because one of the things about these attacks they happened in the same neighborhood and um we can share actually i have a map here of a lot of the different rapes that do happen eventually Um, and they all happen in clusters like a couple houses down one street over it, it's super, uh, it, it's so unsettling to think that he kept hitting the same neighborhood. Like, that, I was so confident.
1: Yeah. And so we already talked about um, the phone calls he would make. Um, so he was stalking his victims ahead of time. Uh, learning their schedules like yep. that, yeah. Burglaries were often reported to have happened in the home prior to a rape attack. So he'd be going into the houses before he um, they ever saw him um, days or weeks leading up. Uh, he learned their schedule, waited until they were alone and in bed. And uh, Victims' ages ranged uh, from 14 to the early 30s, and eventually he uh, starts to move on to couples as well. Yeah, actually, his youngest victim was
0: 13 years old, and it, it's so heartbreaking because um, he uses, you know, just horrible language when he is talking to these these young women and Mm -hmm. and the 13 year old I was reading the report it said do you have you ever fucked before and she's like no I'm a child yeah Yeah. and then then the thing is is he's like do you know what that means and she's like no like she doesn't even know what that means and I heard that when the police were called because the mom the mom was home actually when that happened the mom was in a different room tied up And the mom was in denial that her daughter had been raped, which is so heartbreaking. The police, the police report says we're fairly certain the rape happened here. The mom saying it didn't happen. And I just thinking like I, I don't have kids, but I couldn't imagine thinking like I'm sitting here in another room and my, you know, little girl in the next room got brutally raped and you can't by get up to protect her and these poor girls i mean a lot of the earlier victims too i think the first victim was 23 mm-hmm. and you know victim number five i think was in her late 20s but a lot of these victims were 16 15 and it was their first time which is just
1: oh i so it's terrible horrific. so terrible He would come in through windows and back doors. Attacks typically happen late at night, early mornings, between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. He always wore a ski mask, shined a flashlight in the victim's eyes, wore gloves, brought his own rope and shoelaces, uh, or shoelaces, talked through clenched teeth to disguise his voice. Actually, uh, actually, I want to say something about the shoelaces. So
0: this is an interesting thing I learned on some somewhere else I was reading the shoelaces that he would bring. So, in the beginning, I think the first victim, right? we we said he used you know her hair dryer cord or brush up. He was using whatever he could find. but he he got more experience. He got better. He started bringing shoelaces to tie them up. And one of the interesting facts is that they think that the shoelaces were actually stolen from the home. Mm -hmm. Prior to the rape. So that obviously goes with the, you know, theory that he would break in, case the joint, take some shoelaces from his shoe, and then come back and, you know, tie them up with their own shoelaces.
1: Then uh, victims said that he'd have a certain smell that they couldn't place. Um, We'll talk about this more later, but it could have been dog repellent that they were smelling. Um, Oh, well... Yeah, go <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Uh, he would often be in the home for two to three hours after the first initial rape and then often raped his victims two to three times. So in between raping his victims, he would shuffle through things in the kitchen and living room, eat food, drink a beer. They would think um, he was going to be leaving, but then he would come back and attack them again. Yeah.
0: And, and I think, too, um, a lot of the victims said that it was right before he climaxed that he would stop what he was doing. Mm-hmm and leave the room. And actually there was one victim that said uh the beer so he had drinking some beer in their house and left the beer bottles behind and the victim was like we didn't have any beer in our house. So they think he actually brought himself a couple cold ones or something I guess. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I mean right there,
1: thing of lotion. Gosh. God. Um and he was still stealing uh small items, IDs, uh you know, Jewelry photos. Yeah, he the photo thing is weird. Um, he would
0: move photos around all the time, mm-hmm. and there were some victims that would say stuff like, "Yeah, he would tell me like you, I saw you on your prom night," but they didn't think it was real because they would have a you know a picture of them at prom by their bed, so they're thinking he must have just seen this picture. Yeah, when he was there, either He'd before or around. The yeah, it was it was weird. Really weird. Um, another fun fact <laughs> I was re- we were reading in a lot of the victim's statements uh, that when he would, so he'd, you know, leave, he'd tie them up, and he would leave the room and he'd go rummage through things. And he often, he often didn't get right to the raping. Like he'd often, you know, freak them out with a flashlight, mm-hmm. tie them up, and he would uh, leave the room. And he'd go and they'd hear him wandering around, doing whatever he's doing. And then he'd come back. And they said every time he came back, he came back, he was totally... She's pouring herself another drink over here. <laughs> I got it. Yeah. Every time he'd come back, though, he would come back totally <laughs> pantsless and standing in the doorway, and he'd be erect and ready to go. But he had an abnormally, unusually small penis. And this was actually something in the suspect We're profile. We're not just making fun of him. Micropenis over here. That was literally what they'd say. It's a like ski mask. Five foot nine 180 pounds small penis (laughs) that's just that
1: sucks but (laughs) do with that information what you will but um we gotta give it to you (laughs) so in a span of 11 months d'angelo had committed 15 rapes by this time fear had surged throughout sacramento and neighboring communities town meetings were being held to inform women on how to protect themselves and the media also was becoming an issue around this time the media would release certain details of the cases, such as, "Oh, he's only attacking single women," or "He's not entering homes with large dogs," etc.
0: Yeah, around this time, people were going crazy. Like after the after the media said that, like, "Oh, well, he's only getting people that don't have dogs," so people were going out and getting tons of dogs, and and gun sales are through the roof. People were installing locks for the doors and windows. They were going nuts. Actually, one of the victims, uh, she was victim number twenty. Her and her husband had installed several locks on all their doors and windows because one day she got home from the grocery store or something like that and the neighborhood kids were like, Hey, we were playing and we saw this guy, a hooded man, come out of her backyard. And, you know, that was kind of weird. So she, they freaked out, so they went and bought all these locks. Well, it didn't matter because at 3.45 a.m. on Sunday, May 14th, 1977, He knew exactly which window to pop out to enter their home. He already cased the place. He had found the flawed window and he knew exactly what he was doing. It didn't matter about the locks.
1: It's pretty uh, apparent that D'Angelo was paying attention to the media uh, because after the media would say he's only attacking single women, or uh, he would start entering homes with husbands in the home. Um, Oh, yeah. Actually, I'm sorry to interrupt, (laughs) but um,
0: one of those town meetings... Do you remember the, the detective, the woman detective's name that was working on the rape cases? No. I can't, I'm gonna have to, I'll i find her name later. She was a total just badass, badass woman. I mean, I cannot remember her name right now. I'm going to have to look that up real quick. I'm so sorry. But um, they had meetings and they were you know telling women in the community, this is how you protect yourself and stuff like that. Uh, there was a guy that stood up in the town meeting and said, well, it doesn't seem like he's attacking people when a man is home. That guy that stood up later got his house burglarized and he was later attacked. So he was definitely He hadn't been at that meeting. At Ugh. the meeting,
1: watching the media. He was very involved, um, very involved in anything surrounding um, him. Uh, So on Saturday, April 2nd, 1977, D'Angelo would attack his first couple for his 16th rape. Between April 1977 and February 1978, EAR committed 15 rapes. 14 of them were couples. Let me read an insert describing one couple's experience during the attack. On Friday, March 18th, 1978, at 1 a.m. in Stockton, California. Stockton's about 45 minutes away from Sacramento, by the way. D'Angelo awakened a couple by shining a flashlight beam in their eyes. Through clenched teeth, he says, I won't hurt you, just be quiet. All I want is your money and food so I can live a little longer. I won't hurt you, just be quiet. He waves his gun and says, this is a, a 357 Magnum you see and I'll blow your head off. He then tells them to get on the floor onto their stomachs. He places the gun on the nape of the man's neck and orders him to cross his arms behind him. He then tosses shoelace to the woman and orders her to tie him up. One move, one flinch, and I'll blow your fucking head off. Tie him tighter. Tighter. He then puts his gun on the nape of her neck and orders her to put her arms behind as well. He ties her up. He goes into the k- kitchen and brings back a plate and a bowl. He places them on the man's back and says, If I hear these move, I'll kill your wife. He blindfolds the woman with a shredded towel and, and prods her to walk down the hallway into the living room, where he then binds her ankles. He then proceeds to look for money. He comes back into the living room and asks her, do you like to fuck? He then unbinds her feet and rapes her. He ties her up again and places a plate and a bowl on her neck. One small click, one small noise, and he's dead. He continues to rifle through the house through things. He comes back again and rapes her again. He continues to rape her several times even using suntan lotion as a lubricant. After several hours of this, he'd eventually leave the house without saying a word.
0: Yeah, so this became like his new MO. So before he, wa- he really was attacking mainly women who were alone at home. But I feel like, like I said, he is a, a process over product. So it wasn't just about he needed to get a, a quick in. It was about, I like the thrill. And the thrill of ransacking place in Visalia eventually wasn't enough to satisfy the urge. So then raping young women, which eventually wasn't enough to satisfy the urge. So then he moves on to couples and you just, it's process over product. And, and I mean, prowling the neighborhood, stalking his victims. I mean, he just... He just was living and thriving off this.
1: I feel like he was trying to keep giving himself a challenge. Yeah. And when people challenged him, like that guy who stood up in the the right. meeting, he was like, oh, well, let's see. Now I'm going to start going after couples. Uh,
0: yeah. Actually, um, there was a uh, I can't I can't remember which victim it was. But after the media had said, oh, he's not getting people with dogs. He attacked a woman who had a dog
1: and put the dog in the trunk of the mm-hmm. car. And that goes back to that dog repellent, which we'll talk about more yeah. too again.
0: So, like, prowling the neighborhood, and like we said, you know, the theory, he, he is casing the joint. This guy is doing his research. He is, first, he is noticing the house. He is breaking into the house and, you know, stealing shoelaces, maybe figuring out which window is his best point of entry. And he is learning their... He's learning their um, routines. He's yeah. he's calling, seeing, okay, they're home at this time, they're not home at this time, their husband's home then, their dad's home then, whatever, and, um, you know, just prowling the neighborhood. And actually, right before a rape on March 18th, he murdered a couple who caught
1: him while he was prowling in a neighborhood. Yeah, so that's the Maggiore murders. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing their last name correctly. Um, but they were named Brian and Katie Maggiore, and they were murdered on February 2nd, 1978. Uh, what I'm going to read to you is taken, um, directly from arrest records that were made public, um, actually pretty recently. Um, so bear with me. <laughs> They're very, uh, just straightforward, taking down every detail. So after 9 p.m. on February 2nd, 1978, United States Air Force Sergeant Brian, 21, and his wife Katie, 20, took their dog for a walk through Cordova Meadows, the quiet middle class subdivision of Rancho Cordova in which they lived. And at this point, Rancho, Rancho Cordova is still a small town. It was even smaller back then. I don't think at this time it was incorporated into Sacramento County. Um, anyway, on that particular evening, the area they walked was very dark, only a quarter moon, a few porch lights and a couple of residential light posts on the edge of an occasional driveway provided illumination. At the time, Cordova Meadows was heavily prowled and burglarized, and was the location of several sexual assaults. At some point on their walk, Brian and Katie engaged with an unidentified assailant, and to be in the back and to be in the backyard of a residence in um, a block of La Gloria Drive. It is Sally. <laughs> she got thirsty. <laughs> It is unknown whether they were chased into the yard, followed the suspect into the yard, or perhaps followed their dog into the yard. The dog was actually later found located in the swimming pool at this residence. Mm -hmm. I know. Uh, A witness who lived at the residence described the violent encounter in his backyard. His vantage point was an upstairs window. He observed the suspect and the victims in his backyard and watched as they ran into the adjacent rear yard on the La Algeria residence. Brian was located at this location, suffering from a gunshot wound that rendered him unable to speak. Um, I'm assuming that means he was shot in the face, um, but it doesn't say. Uh, the witness um, then saw the suspect run around the east side of the house near the residence chimney and disappear. It was too dark for the victim to make out specific details of the suspect, the suspect even for his excellent vantage point. A different witness standing in his driveway uh, was speaking with a neighbor. Both the witness and the neighbor heard two separate gunshots. The witness then heard the sound of a man jumping off the gate immediately next to the chimney of the crime scene where the suspect had fled. He heard a sound as though somebody had jumped a fence and then fallen into bushes. The witness said he heard the suspect thrash in the bushes, free himself, and then run west towards West La Loma Drive. The witness then saw the suspect run up to his lawn near a tree in the yard. The suspect got within approximately 25 feet of the witness when the suspect spotted him and the neighbor. The suspect rapidly changed direction and ran across the street. In his brief observation, the witness noticed the suspect was wearing a black or blue knit ski mask that only left his eyes and nose exposed and was possibly holding a handgun. He further stated that the subject was wearing a brown leather jacket gathered at the waist with a peanut shaped stain on the lower right of the back. I'm
0: sorry, the this subject- is kind <laughs> of a weird thing okay, to notice.
1: I laughed at this when I was reading it too, because I'm like, he only got a quick look, but he noticed a peanut shaped stain on the lower <laughs> right of the back. It was shaped like a peanut. Was he like, <laughs> eating peanuts and he like held it up and was just like, yeah, that's peanut shaped. But
0: like, is it like pre shelled or after shelled peanut shape? I know, because it could have been quite small or quite large depending on the shell. You know what I just pictured right now? And I'm sorry, I don't mean to pull away from the severity of this crime, but when you said peanut shaped stain, I literally pictured Mr. Peanut. Oh, yeah. Like the logo, the guy with oh, yeah. like the cap Top and cane, like bottom. literally chilling yep. on the back of the jacket. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> was the '70s. Uh, the
1: things uh, that they used
0: to describe things <laughs> are peanut shaped. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: okay. Um, but yeah, this is you know that's in the police report. <laughs> um, and the he uh, the witness also said the subject had dark, quiet shoes, and he described him as um, in between six to six two um, feet with fair skin. Strange behavior was reported from several witnesses, such as comments like "Excuse me, I'm trespassing." When seen by a resident in his yard, suspect- wait, hold on. Yes, so he was running through yards saying "Excuse me, I'm trespassing," <laughs> but my my sign clearly says no trespassing. Yes, that's why he was apologizing. You know, he's just like this yeah, is I'm the 70s. Right. <laughs> I'm trespassing. Uh, and when seen by a resident in his yard, the suspect was also carrying um, a football-sized object in his hand that appeared to be made of cloth. Um, the police record doesn't go into what that could have been. Um, maybe it was a football covered with a cloth. We'll never know. Uh, the suspect would jump behind (laughs) objects and shield his face with his arm and jacket whenever he encountered a witness. He's, like, standing behind a light pole, like, you can't see me. (laughs) Like... <laughs> Excuse me, I'm trespassing. Peanut shaped and football shaped. Yeah. Um, so you know some strange details. But that's what happens when you have witnesses that aren't expecting you know to see something like this in their neighborhood. It's quiet. It's nighttime. Uh, it's just strange. Um, so, nearly one dozen witnesses actually saw him um, at this point, and they all described him as a white male. That's somewhere. 12, if you guys don't know what a dozen is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not a baker's dozen. A dozen. <laughs> uh, so, a white male between 5'9 and 6'2. Which is quite a difference, just going to It say. really is. <laughs> you know, this isn't Tinder. You can't put...
0: You can't Six say you're when 60 you're five when nine. you're really 5'9. <laughs> so Just no. saying, we notice. <laughs> we notice. <laughs> you also can't say you're 30 when you're really. I mean, you're 20 when you're really 30. Yeah, we also notice that. We noticed that too. <laughs> yeah.
1: So he had brown hair uh, to the middle of his ears, uh, described as light to dark brown, depending on the witness. It was brown. Hair parted, described by some as bushy. just kidding. Sorry. (laughs) Probably not the right climate for this, but... There it goes. (laughs) The dark jacket made of shiny material, possibly leather or vinyl, and brown and soft-soled shoes. At the crime scene where both Brian and Katie were shot, there was a single pre-tied shoelace located in the yard a few feet from where Brian was lying. Considering that several seconds elapsed between shots fired and the witness seeing the man jump the fence... Uh, This part next is redacted, so we don't know what happened here. (laughs) Um, The owners of the home uh, where the couple were found did not recognize the shoelaces. So again, he's bringing his shoelaces. Uh, They were pre-tied as a ligature as opposed to a straight shoelace um, as if to allow a quick cinching technique. Brian and Katie were each transported to area hospitals where they died as a result of the gunshot wounds they suffered. In the weekdays and... Even the night of their murders, 12 homes in the immediate neighborhood were reported burglarized. These incidents include prowlers, hang-up and/or silent phone calls, and uh, burglaries. Additionally, the only residents along the American River Parkway were burglarized that only other residents along the American River Parkway were burglarized that night. D'Angelo drew pictures with his semen on the window of a 25-year-old woman as he was watching <laughs> near the Maggiore home. What the fuck? So, I'm know, sorry. She, no, 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 I know. So he was watching her in the nights leading up to, you know, these um, these murders, and she just decides to you know, bang one out and then I'm going to draw
0: smiley face. <laughs> I'm
1: just
0: like... Look at my happy family. What? <laughs> Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> what in the I, world? I, he was just. You know what though? That no. guy should have went to art school because I have seen some
1: weird shit like that when I went to when I went to school. I loved it. And you yeah, know, it's really creepy to think of this guy who, at this point, already figured out a system for raping and killing, prowling around neighborhood weeks before striking, beginning to know everybody's day to day schedule. He knows how to um, make art with his semen. Yes, an- another talent we don't want to know about but we do now and so do you so if we have to know you have to know um, and <laughs> Put and on his resume <laughs> yes A semen artist uh but i'm sure after the murders of brian and katie the people who reported the homes being burglarized um or felt like they were being watched looked back and connected it themselves um like that could have easily been them that was killed um and, like, recently my boyfriend's coworker, who lives in the same complex as us, told us that his car was just broken into and some of his stuff was stolen. Like, it sucks, but it appears so innocent in comp- comparison to a rape or a murder. And it was all these little things that were escalating to the point where D'Angelo was, you know, going further and you know, yeah, killing people now.
0: You know, and the the interesting thing is I feel like, okay, in today's society, I mean, we have alarm systems we have several locks we have you know um what is it the ring that records yeah. things you know that's the all the ups men are famous today because of ring um we have all these things and so if someone breaks into your home it's a big deal i mean that gets reported and and everything you know is out mm-hmm. there but Sometimes some of these people weren't even reporting that someone had broken into their home because, I mean, I think, I feel like back then they're like, it was probably just some punk kids, you know. Yeah, like did I leave the door unlocked? maybe Mm -hmm. I forgot to do that or whatever. I mean, I don't know. And this is a time frame where people left their doors unlocked. They left children home alone. I mean even me I'm not that old and when I was 11 or 12 my parents would leave me home alone and I'd babysit my brothers you know I think I got around the time frame that I was in middle school is when I think kids started getting cell phones but even then I, I would ride my bike all around town and my mom would just be like be home by this time frame it wasn't it wasn't what it's like now now it's you know everything is so crazy, and, and a break-in could be leading to something else. But at this time, if someone broke in your house, you're not thinking they're going to come back and rape me or shoot me or something. They hadn't seen anything like this. No, before. no, this is crazy. I mean, this was like we said, the end to Sacramento's innocence and. I mean, these people were terror, terrorized. And like I said, these things were happening in clusters. So it happened on Mr. and Mrs. Smith's house. And then a few weeks later, it happened in their next door neighbor's house. And it was it was insane that he was just, the rate that he was attacking too, rate, I was, I was listening to um, this one podcast, I can't remember what it's called. And the person was saying, you know, when I first looked up the Golden State Killer, and I was thinking like, oh, he he murdered twelve people. But then you kind of skip over fifty rapes and then you think back and you're like, Oh my god though, fifty rapes? Yeah. 50, 50 homes that this guy broke into and terrorized, destroyed for the rest of their lives, fifty people he did that to. And, and that's then on top the of 1970s the nineteen
1: seventies to mid nineteen eighties.
0: Yeah. And then on top of the hundred houses he broke into in Visalia, and this guy has committed already an insane, insane amount. Um, So, D'Angelo committed about 50 rapes between 1976 and 1979. 50 rapes. It started, he was called the EAR, the East Area Rapist, because it started in the area, but like we said, it did venture around. There was a couple in San Jose, San Ramon, Southern Sacramento, Stockton. It, It kind of, it kind of went all around. But, um, Eventually, he moved to Southern California, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But one rape that he tried to commit, it was an attempted rape um, before he started moving on to bigger things. This happened in the sleepy Santa Barbara County town of Goleta, California, which is a coastal town with mountains and trees. It's really pretty and serene. Um, I'm actually thinking about camping there in a couple weeks, but uh, on October 1st, 1979 in Goleta, California, similar to the previous EAR cases, a couple awoke to a flashlight in their faces. A man in a ski mask bound them up in the same manner, face down, and, and with this, I actually don't know if he had the woman tie the husband up first and then tie the woman up. I'm assuming that's how he did it. It didn't really say here. But um, he did have them tied up, stomach down, and hog-style, ankles and arms behind. And he, this time, he leaves the room and he wanders around the kitchen. And the couple is left in the same room, so normally when he's attacked a couple, he has separated them, right? And he puts the plate on them so he can have his alarm system, but this time, He leaves them in the same room and he's probably going through some fucking psychotic break right now because he's muttering to himself, I'll kill you, I'll kill you, I'll kill you. And the woman, she's, you know, all gung ho on like energy and like, oh my gosh, I got it. This is a flight or die situation. And she gets up somehow and somehow gets out the door screaming. And her neighbor, by luck, is an FBI agent. He wakes up. He hears her screaming. He comes out and he sees the and um, D'Angelo fleeing the house on a silver bike, which is noted it was stolen because he mm-hmm. loves steel bikes, apparently. And he jumps in his car. The FBI agent jumps in his car and he chases this guy. This guy is riding the bike again. Uh, That's his escape route, I guess. And he ditches the bike and he escapes into the San Jose River trails because, again, this house in Goleta, Goleta is close to these parks and trails that anyone can disappear into a tree, a creek, whatever, which is kind of why I think this guy actually I was thinking about this and all these rapes that would happen, you know, It's never reported that he escapes in a car. He's always escaping on foot. And I was thinking about that. I'm like, how the hell is he getting there? And all I could think was he must be parking a really long ways away from where he's attacking. And like I said, he's attacking in areas that are close to a trail. So he has an escape route, which is smart. I mean, Son of Sam got caught because he out of parking ticket on his car. Yeah. And that's how he got caught. And this guy is escaping on bikes and on foot. And while Stolen I make fun bikes. of him, I'm like, this is ridiculous. At the same time, it's kind of ingenious because he can sneak through areas that you can't get through with a car. But I think this was intended to be his first murder with a rape. Like, I think he was planning on raping the wife and murdering them both. But it went wrong. And so a few months later, and honestly just a few streets over from this couple, Joseph D'Angelo would commit his first, as we uh, call it, the original Night Stalker murder. And that's where we're actually going to end this first episode, and we'll get on to the the murders in the next episode. And by, by murder, I mean he's already murdered people before he shot... The guy, when he was trying to kidnap the 16-year-old, he murdered that guy in Visalia, and then he murdered the couple in Sacramento. But in the next episode, we're going to talk about some of these murders that are definitely premeditated. So, so yeah, pretty
1: intense stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, you've made it through the first episode, and... Uh Thank you. Yes, I mean, um, well, real
0: quick, you know, this episode I think went on longer than probably most episodes will, so they're not all going to be this long, I promise you. Um, But you know, the more I was telling, I was telling Katie, the more that I read about this guy, the more there is to say about him. It's it's just it's unreal that this guy for 40 years was a ghost and he committed so many of these heinous crimes and at this point in the 70s they don't know these guys are are the same person too by the way they no. think the EAR rapist is one person and this murder that or attempted rape and murder is someone else and the Vesalia ransacking is someone else so it's just I don't know this crazy times. I don't know if someone would get away with it like this now. I hope not. Um, that's different. But yeah, that, that's our first episode. Um, like I said, I think we decided to tackle too big of a whale for our first episode. <laughs> so, you know, after we get through this guy, I think we'll be tackling some more well known and easier subjects. Anyways, we have started an Instagram. It's called Crimes and Cocktails. It's A and D. And we are going to be on Spotify. If you're listening to this, you've obviously discovered that already. Um, but please follow, give us a follow on Instagram. Share us with your friends who are also into the weird stuff. And we hope that you will tune in for our next uh, episode. All right. Well, Thank thanks. you. Bye, guys.